Good morning, Jess. Good morning, Z. How are you? I'm fantastic. How about you? I'm doing well. We're excited to have our listeners here with us today. It's episode two, part one, education as indoctrination. We hope you enjoy. You're listening to Awakened in America, two minds on a journey to create dialogue about diversity, inclusion, and optimism. Try to make it a little more conversational today because like we talked about, we put a lot of time and effort into these (laughs) prep calls and discussing what we're going to discuss. And then sometimes we make our best points over text or (laughs) in the free call. So yeah, I guess maybe we'll start with the first thing, which was kind of like some firsthand experiences we had in our upbringings. That sounds good. So um, as a youngster, As far as education for me, I was actually bused out of my district. So I grew up in a predominantly, actually, I would say middle-class Black um, neighborhood in Queens, New York. And a lot of celebrities actually lived in that community, like Langston Hughes and um, uh, several others. A lot of jazz musicians. And um, so anyway, so I was, I was used to being around actually Blacks and Hispanics predominantly, and the schools just unfortunately weren't up to par. So there was an opportunity to bust me to a predominantly white school, and this is in the early 80s. Again, so I went to predominantly white school for elementary did and friends in your neighborhood go there too? Or did most of the... Um, most there were about 10 of us. So maybe 10 of us met at a bus stop. And then junior high school was also in a predominantly white neighborhood. Yes. And Was that intimidating for you? when, it, Or did it just... Because you always went to that school, did it just seem normal? Well, I started off in a Christian Lutheran school. So for first and second grade, and I think that the adjustment that I had initially was just more being with public school children, I have to say, honestly. Interesting. Uh, but then I was, I was around other Blacks in the, in the Lutheran Christian school. So I didn't feel like it was a shock to go to the public school because there were whites in my class in the Lutheran school too. I didn't really notice a difference that way, except that we were on the bus and there weren't, you know, there were only blacks on that bus coming from that particular area. And so then obviously like it was from first to sixth grade. So you had all these students that were first, sixth grade. And then when you got to the school, you could see how we were like spread out. So in my class, I think when I first went to that school, I was one of three in my class. So that, you know, all right. Then for fourth grade, I was, I think, one of two in my class. And from fourth to sixth, I was one of two in my class. So 
I didn't necessarily feel strange because my best friends who had also come from the Christian school were also in that school and they were also subject to the same things. Mm-hmm. So we all, ex- if we experienced racism, if we experienced whatever, it was the same. I guess our parents felt like we were going to get a better education in that community. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And um, Did you feel like you were welcomed in the school or did you feel like there was a divide between the races? I would say that there was a divide. I mean, you always have, you know, kids that accept other people. But then there were plenty of kids who didn't. And they didn't, there wasn't like, yeah, there was some overt racism. But, um, but anyway, I, I was in a gifted class and I learned different languages, Greek, French, mm-hmm. you know. And that's what I think about when I think about neighborhoods where schools are like threes and ones mm-hmm. and fours or anything less than even a seven. I think about the missed opportunities. Like I was afforded the ability to go on class trips to like Washington, D.C. and see the monuments and, you know, and they're not going to be afforded those same opportunities because of funding and the way it's trickled down mm-hmm. with the, the taxes from property taxes. And that whole separate but equal that's like the whole reason behind the civil rights movement is they said, yeah, we could be separate, but equal, but then there was no equal. There was no equality because we were separate, but of course blacks noticed that white schools got more resources. Like how would, how would one not notice that? I think it's really important to note that even though that changed, it really didn't change that much because of the redlining, because of the systemic racism in communities of color. So the wealth gap in America is directly linked to education. Which is directly linked to opportunities and And access. Generational wealth and all of these things that are systemic that we're dealing with kind of front and center right now. Yes. And, you know, you can even trace it back again I do not pretend to be any sort of expert on any of this, but I'm learning as I go. And, you know, one of the things we've mentioned, at least between the two of us, I'm not sure if we were recording, but how pivotal the GI Bill was in changing where people of color could live because it was heavily white favored. People that came back from World War II were not given, you know, people of color were not given the same opportunities for mortgages in desirable areas. And that really had an effect on everything, you know, in terms of the redlining as it's called and where people can, uh, their schools can draw funding, you know, and property taxes, local, locally funded, um, local funds are 45%, I think of how public schools are funded. So if you're taking into account about half of a school's funding is based on the property value of the area around it, you can put two and two together that those schools are not going to have the same access to resources, like you said. And then I was actually watching the United Shades, which I highly recommend for anybody who's looking for a show that is enough 
serious enough to educate you, but it's not so heavy that you feel like you're being taught something. <laughs> I think the host, W. Kamau Bell, does an excellent job of being entertaining on something that is so heavy and dark and serious in terms of systemic racism. And um, one of the things he just went to a school in East Cleveland and was talking about these, you know, steel towns that have kind of had these booms and were once really desirable places to live. And then the steel industry sort of crashed in the U.S. Things went overseas. And a lot of, you know, there's something called white flight, which, you know, basically all the white people moved out there. The town is almost abandoned now. And uh, what would you say? With high crime rates. and Right. And so the school is trying to figure out, you know, how to to make it. And I think they have like 700 students in a school that used to be much larger than that. Um, but he was saying a lot of the, the money that schools get from the state is absorbed by, in these kind of lower income areas, they're absorbed by things like food, people needing state aid for, to be fed, you know, and security for the school. And in a higher income area, in a more desirable place to live, those resources aren't absorbed by that. So they have more freedom to invest in these extracurriculars. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're talking about, like being able to learn Greek and being able to take these class trips and all these things. And um, anyway, it reminded me of where I grew up, which is in Indiana, not too far from Chicago in the Northwest corner. And I actually moved there. My family moved there when I was three. So we didn't really have family there or know anyone when we moved. We moved from my dad's job. And similarly, he, he was, he's an engineer and he worked in the steel industry for his whole career in various aspects. But um, similarly, you know, there's a part of Indiana called Gary and there are a lot of blast furnaces there and places that produce actual steel. And you know, just like East Cleveland, once things kind of moved overseas, the white people all left and seeing it now, I mean, it's, it's very depressing. It's abandoned and the crime rate is crazy. It was the murder capital of the world at one point. And this is somewhere that was like maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes drive from where I grew up. And, um, where I grew up was predominantly white. I think I've mentioned that before. So Growing up, it was like this thing where I knew I wasn't supposed to go to Gary, you know, when I had a driver's license and stuff like that. But even before then, you know, you heard about, oh, there's a lot of crime and, you know, you don't want to go to Gary and stuff like that. But it never really occurred to me why that it happened that we lived somewhere so close to some somewhere that was so dangerous, right. you know. And um, once I got into high school and started playing sports, it became kind of more of a a topic, I guess, because we would play sports with teams from those schools in Gary. And usually they would come to us because if we had the games in in Gary, no one would show up. You know, people were afraid to bus, you know, kids from other schools into Gary and the parents were afraid to go there to support the teams. So um, they would usually come to our school and I played volleyball and tennis. And a lot of the time they wouldn't even have enough people to play. It would be kind of like a last minute decision whether we could even have the game because they might not have six girls to comprise the team, you know? 
And, um, and again, I don't, I, I know I didn't have the appropriate amount of empathy for the situation at the time. And it's so strange to me now because nobody was kind of explaining how unfortunate the situation was, you know, in my all white school with my all white teachers and my all white coaches and everybody was just like, Oh yeah, you know, that's, that's a shame or like, that's too bad. Um, but when I think about it now, and especially when I think about my kids and, you know, the way that I want to teach them, I feel like it's so important that they understand the situation, you know, and, um, I guess for me, when I think about those girls, they must have been embarrassed. You know, visibly, you could tell they were embarrassed. They didn't have the money for the cool uniforms and the warm-up shirts and, you know, all of that. And if they could comprise a team, it was basically understood that it wasn't going to be, like, very competitive, you know, because maybe, I don't know, maybe they didn't have the funding for coaches or, you know, I, I, I honestly, I don't know. Basketball was a different story because I feel like they, they could compete with basketball you know, so those, those games were not like that. But for, for me, when I think about like volleyball and tennis, it was definitely like a, you know, an, an understood thing. So, yeah. And, and when I think about that now as a parent and something you and I talked about, you, you said you might ask me today, how will I do things differently now that I'm awakened, you know, and aware, I think first it's acknowledging systemic racism, you know, that step one is a thing in the U S and you are really blind if you don't see that, um, At this point. how it is permeated. Yes. Through the country and society and, um, the way that as a parent, I can relate to other parents who feel like they can't give their kids the same opportunities in a public school. I mean, that should not be a thing in 2020, you know? So number one, it's, it's now important to me to understand the racial makeup of the schools that I send my kids to, because you're not doing your kids any favors by sending them to an all white school. If you have a choice, I think it gives families, obviously you have to give yourself an opportunity to be inclusive and integrate, you know, I know it's probably more comfortable and I am, you know, a testament to this myself. It's more comfortable to stay with what you know and people that look like you and all of that. But if you're really dedicated to doing something with the momentum that we have going right now, instead of just reading a book or buying some books for your kids on racism and maybe attending a Black Lives Matter protest, I think those are all great steps. But this is, you know, like every every hashtag says, this is a movement, not a moment. And as you pointed out, this is basically like a modern day civil rights thing that's happening right now. So if we're really going to take this somewhere long term, it's a shift in mindset and you don't you don't go back to the way you used to think about it, you know? And I think not only do I want my kids to go to a school that has other races represented, you know, and decently represented, going out of your comfort zone to make sure that you're making an effort to integrate with those people of color in their class because even in the school yeah, if you're, and you do have to go out of your way, I think. If you, you know, most likely because of where I live, we're going to end up at a school where there's still going to be the majority, you know, and 
and I'm, I'm good with that. I don't feel like I need to do it, you know, something crazy and radical and send them to a school where they're, they're the minority. But I do feel like if you're thinking about this the way that I am, you want to go to a school that is integrated and then you want to take it a step further and make sure you're reaching out to the friends that are of other races in that class to make sure that they feel included in the play dates and the birthday parties outside of the classroom. You know, I think it's really not enough to have a classroom that's comprised of all different races, but then all of the African-Americans hang out together and all the Hispanic kids hang out together and all the white kids hang out together. You know, yeah. So if you're going to try to really make a difference and break down that barrier, I think there needs to be more of an effort on, um, on the part of the white parents to make those play dates happen and make sure that uh, your kids understand the importance of getting to know their classmates outside of the classroom and getting to know those parents so that they don't feel left out. And, you know, by doing that, I think you're really paving the way for them to be inclusive people of the world, you know, and then when they start work eventually and start their careers, they're not going to carry that, you know, I've got to stay with people that are like me mentality. Cause that's something that I feel like my friends obviously were not school age. Well, some of us are still in school like you, but um, <laughs> doing the doctorate thing but for the rest of us that aren't in school, you still have opportunities in your workplace to make things different too, you know? And if you're just because you have a quote unquote diverse company, every company wants that title, but I know there are a lot of people that are at these diverse companies, people of color, minorities that do not feel included. So if you're, you know, if you're trying to do better and you're trying to be a white progressive and um, you're good intentioned with all of this, make sure you're thinking about it as not just something that's, you know, trendy and you're not just um, trying to kind of like cover your butt and be like, I, yeah, like I have a, an African-American friend. I'm not racist. I never use the N-word, you know, things like that. That doesn't, that's not a catch-all. That, those are expected just as a, you know, basic, that's the baseline as a human, <laughs> right? So that doesn't make you not racist, by the way. And, and there's a distinction there between being anti-racist and not racist, you know? And I think the anti-racist thing is something that's getting a lot of press right now too, but it's identifying racism and then standing up and right. saying the something. Out. It's the speaking out that makes you uh, an anti-racist because you're actually seeking justice in the moment as right. opposed to uh, just letting something slide for the sake of that person's feelings. Because it's uncomfortable. Right, it's uncomfortable. Don't or you embarrass them. Yeah. Received or what have you but speaking out and doing like husband John Lewis said and getting into good trouble. Thank you for listening to Awakened in America. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at Awakened in America. That's Awakened underscore in underscore America. And remember, be mindful, be grateful, and most of all, be you.